Amen. Thank you. Let's take our Bibles now, if you'll open them, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Find Ephesians, chapter 1, and it's good to be back in the study of this book tonight, which I believe is one of the most important books of the Bible that we can study. And tonight we want to look again at these last few verses of this first chapter. And in these verses, Paul is offering a dynamic prayer for the saints at Ephesus. And as we learned last week, the the focus of this prayer and the theme of this prayer is found in verse number 18, where Paul prays for enlightenment of their understanding. It's so that they might know what they have received in Christ. And under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, I do believe that that Paul is writing as much uh, to us tonight as he was to those people 20 centuries ago because there is a a woeful lack of of, uh, uh, understanding of the things that we've talked about in this first chapter. And uh, we need enlightenment over these things. In fact, this first chapter is one of the most argued chapters in the Bible, and yet Paul puts everything forth here so simply and without argument, and he puts it very succinctly as if he thought that no argument was actually needed. But Paul's prayer is is a good prayer for us to learn about. It's one in which there uh, is nothing asked here for material gain. Uh, Paul doesn't ask for any personal items. All that he's asking God to do is to open the Ephesians' eyes to understand who God is, who they are, and to very clearly understand where their salvation comes from and that there's nothing that they could do in themselves to earn that, but it all comes by the grace of God. And it's all for God's glory. But I'd like us to stand if we would, and let's read these verses again. We want to look at verse number 15 and read down to the end of this first chapter. Ephesians 1, verse number 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Uh, this book of Ephesians. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that we learn here. We just ask you, Lord, you'd open our eyes, that you give us the spiritual enlightenment that we need to understand these great doctrines of our faith. Bless us through this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me take just a moment to talk about uh, a little bit about what we spoke of in the first part of the message last week. I began the message last week by pointing out the praise of prayer. And Paul began this by mentioning the two most important aspects of Christian character. He spoke about faith and love. And as we said last week, faith and love are the true acid test of Christianity. Faith has to be right. Faith has to be uh, correctly placed. And Paul points out to us as he uh, begins this prayer, that this is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means to understand correctly who Jesus is. 
Now, Jesus said that we worship God. The only way we can worship God is in spirit and truth. And those two things cannot be separated. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we have to have the right kind of faith. Then I believe that Paul was also speaking about an obedient faith. I mean, these are people who trusted Jesus as the Lord. uh, Jesus was the Lord of their life. And so that means that they had a faith that demonstrates, a faith that works out, a faith that does something. Just as James said, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And our our works are really the evidence that we do have the right kind of faith. And evidently, these Ephesian people had the right kind of faith. They did have a demonstrating faith. They were working Christians. And the proof of that is that Paul, who was a prisoner at Rome, heard from that great distance what these Christian people in Ephesians in Ephesus were doing. Then the second thing that Paul spoke about there was their love. And we can't escape this, that love is a prominent theme throughout the New Testament. That is an essential mark of Christianity. And the ability to love one another instead of being uh, self-serving and and, and self-loving only can come from God. And that's because God has first loved us and God has given us the ability to love others. And so every word that Paul speaks in this first chapter, the order in which he gives his word, all of this is important. As he mentions these first two marks of Christian character, uh, he mentions them as faith and love. And that order is not accidental. Faith is first. Faith is primary. And love comes after that because it's only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we can really be people who know how to love. Faith is what gives us our right relationship with God. Now, I want to move on to the second part of this sermon. Uh, Paul first speaks about praise of prayer. And now I want to move on to the petitions of prayer. Uh, I'd like for us to uh, take a little while in this message and the next message to speak about the specifics of what Paul is uh, is asking for. He praised them for their faith and their love. And now Paul moves on to three areas in which he prays that God would give these Ephesians understanding. Now, remember... The the theme of this prayer is enlightenment. It's to understand what God has done for them and, and who they are in Christ. But before I actually come to the specifics of the prayer, I want to address for just a few minutes about why these people needed this enlightenment. And the reason that they did is because there were already errors that were creeping into the early church. Some doctrinal errors were already prevalent among the people And in fact, some of those same doctrinal errors are around today. In fact, almost all of the heresies that we see being taught today started very early on. And many of these things have been hashed and rehashed uh, rehashed throughout Christian history. And so these things aren't really new. And I've grouped these errors under uh, this heading, early church heresies. And I want to talk to you about four early church heresies. The first one is Christ plus philosophy. Now, in the early church, many people had been duped into believing that uh, they had not received by faith all that was really necessary for their salvation. And so in order for their salvation to be complete, something had to be added to their faith. Some ritual or, or some requirement had to come later. And only when they had this extra thing that was added to their faith, then would their salvation become real to them. Now, this was especially true in the Colossian church. And Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, and he addressed their doctrinal errors. And the things that entered into that church became a spreading virus throughout all of those early churches. And still, folks, uh, uh, today, uh, it's prevalent among Christian churches to believe that faith alone, faith by itself, is not sufficient for our justification. 
And one of the errors that crept into the church is that of human philosophy. And human philosophy says that it is possible for us to rationally investigate our existence. We can rationally investigate and find out through human understanding why we're here, what we're doing, where we're going, how we started, and all of those things. And one of the most serious errors of human philosophy, and the one that is very prevalent today, is the theory of evolution. And if you look at evolution, uh, when you take evolution to its logical conclusions, it will destroy basic Bible teachings. It destroys the doctrine of the depravity of man. It destroys the idea of how sin entered into the universe. It radically alters the reasons why God gave us an atonement. And evolution, most of all, violates the glory of God. And yet, what do we find today? We find many Christians who embrace this theory of evolution. And we act as if this is not a serious error, that it really doesn't matter, but this is a very heinous error in the eyes of God. And not only that, but we have Bible scholars today who try to incorporate the theory of evolution into their theistic schemes. Folks, you can even pick up your Schofield Bible. If you have a Schofield Bible, you can even look in there and you can find that Schofield, in that very first chapter of Genesis, allows for the gap theory. He allows that, that uh, uh, there's a, a huge eons of time that could have happened between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis, or between the first and the second days. And what Schofield actually does, even though he doesn't say that man evolved, he does give credence to the idea that the fossil record there was before uh, man actually committed sin. And, of course, that denies what the Bible actually has to say. Death was introduced into the universe when Adam sinned. And there was no death before the fall of man. But evolution says that there was. And so uh, religionists today will try to soothe the scientific community by introducing theistic evolution. And, folks, that's really nothing more than a denial of Scripture. And Paul warned us about such things as this. He told the Colossians, you need to watch out for this. You need to watch out for the introduction of human philosophy into Bible teachings. He said in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So that was an error. Christ plus philosophy. The second error that was in the church was Christ plus legalism. You may remember when we studied the book of Acts, I preached two or three messages on the errors of legalism. And this is when people believe that there is some act of man that needs to be added to our faith in order for salvation to be realized. And so some people will add things like baptism. And of course, in the case of Roman Catholicism, they add the sacraments. You must have the sacraments, and that goes along with your faith. And in fact, Roman Catholicism teaches that if a person believes that he can be justified by his faith alone, then he's to be anathematized. And then you find whenever somebody teaches that it's possible for you to lose your salvation, that's really nothing other than teaching legalism. Now, that's a false view of salvation. And Paul was already combating that in the early churches, and he did so because of the influence of the Jews. And you may remember we talked about that, how the Jews were insisting that the Gentiles be circumcised, and they couldn't be saved without that circumcision. And that's the error of legalism. It's adding works to salvation. Then there was a third error, and the third error was Christ plus experience. Now, what do I mean by Christ plus experience? 
Well, I mean the error of, of feelings, feelings and emotions, and the accompaniment of supernatural dreams and visions and revelation. You see, in the early church, pride was getting the best of some of these people, and they began to elevate themselves to be superior Christians by some supposed revelation that they had, something that came to them extra from the Word of God. And doesn't that sound familiar to us today? People are doing the same thing. You think about it. What is the fastest growing sect in Christianity today all around the world? What is it? The charismatic movement. And what's that built upon? It's built upon experience, emphasizing experience. They're they're emotionless, and their faith is built upon those emotions. And so they begin to glamorize the gifts of the Spirit, and they say, you must experience something. And if you don't have that experience, then you don't have the highest order of Christianity. And then there are some Christians, or some charismatics, I should say, some of them that go so far to say that as if you do not speak in tongues, if you don't evidence faith by speaking in tongues, then you aren't saved. And so they believe that there is a second work of grace. What Christ did on the cross is not sufficient. There must be a second work of grace. And so you must have the experience. And so Paul warned about that as well. In 1 Corinthians, he plainly told us there that the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit, they would cease... And we don't need those anymore. But then there was a fourth error. And the fourth error is Christ plus sacrifice. Christ plus sacrifice. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, this is actually the error of asceticism. Now, maybe you don't understand what asceticism means. What that actually means is self-denial. And asceticism is what gave rise to the monastic societies of the Roman Catholics. And so you have the nuns and you have the monks who separate themselves from the general population. And what they use is self-denial. Self-denial is their pathway to God. Well, asceticism fosters the sin of pride. And the sin of pride is a very serious sin. Folks, I believe that that even shows up in different forms among our Baptist churches today. I mean, I suppose uh, one of the most irritating forms of this, and maybe something you haven't even thought about, and that's the idea of fasting. Now, I, know, uh, I don't know of any Baptist today who practice biblical fasting. Now, I don't say that there's anything wrong with fasting. I don't think there is. But we just don't do it biblically today. You see, the simple command that Jesus gave concerning the fast was that if you are going to fast, you make sure that nobody knows about it. He said, you make sure that nobody sees this. Don't you even look like you're fasting. Don't appear that you're fasting. Don't even tell anybody that you're fasting. But what do we have churches do today? Well, they proclaim a fast. You can sign up for the fast. And they want to know how long you're going to fast. Well, that's not biblical. That's not the way the Bible says to do it. There's nothing wrong with a fast. But how do you know if somebody's fasting? Well, they would have to tell you. And that would be against the Bible. And so that's a form of asceticism. We build ourselves up through some kind of self-denial. And that makes us more holy in the eyes of God. Now, why do I want to bring out these errors? Well, we need to bring this out as a backdrop for Paul's petitions. Why is he asking for enlightenment? Why does he ask them to have the truth of the Spirit revealed to them? It's because all these errors are floating around out there. They needed to know about those. Now, you know, sometimes, folks, people may get angry at me when I mention some group by name or I talk about the error of some particular people. But that's exactly what we find in the New Testament. And that's part of our job is to expose the error that's out there and steer our people away from those errors. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul was doing. So what does he ask for? What kind of enlightenment does he ask for? Well, first of all, he asked God that they might be able to understand God's plan. Now, Paul had just made a sweeping introduction into the work of the Trinity and salvation. He started with God the Father and, and God's eternal purpose before the foundation of the world. He talked about the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. Then he spoke about the believer's sealing by the Holy Spirit. And he said that all of this is by God's predestined plan. And men need enlightenment concerning God's predestined plan. Now, I want you to notice how he begins with the understanding of the plan. How does he say that they would understand this? Well, the first thing that he talks about here is God's call. In verse number 18, he says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, maybe you've read that, and maybe you've passed over it before, that this is a very, very important thing that he asks for here. This is a call that's very specific to God's people. Now, understand something. The whole tenor of this first chapter is that we might understand that Paul is speaking specifically to the saints of God. He says right in verse number 1, to the saints which are at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's being very specific about what group of people that he's talking about. Now, why is that so important? Well, we have to go back and connect it with previous doctrines that we've talked about. He's spoken about chosen ones and, and redeemed ones. And he says the chosen ones were elected in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then he teaches us that the redeemed ones are one and the same with those that were elected before time. And so they are redeemed in time. And so what we have right there is unconditional election and we have particular redemption. So how is it then that these people who have been elected in time finally come to the place that they realize that they need to come to Christ, that they need repentance and faith? How do they do that? Well, they are called, and this call is very specific to this group of people. You see, God doesn't call the elect in the same way that he calls everyone in general. And so, to make a distinction here so that we can understand it, theologians divide this into two groups, uh, two distinctions, two separate groups of people in the gospel call. And so there are two different types of calls. The first one is this, and that is the general call. Now, when I stand up and I preach on Sunday morning, or I get up in any service for that matter, and I look over the congregation, I preach to everyone that's here without distinction. I may preach a pure gospel message, like I preach three messages on John 3.16. And when I preach that gospel message, I give a general call. I I give the, the gospel to everyone in general, and I encourage them to have faith in Christ. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus told us to do. In Matthew, or rather Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so without distinction, and without knowing who may be in the congregation who will believe and who will not believe, we just give a general call of the gospel. But I want you to understand that when I preach in that manner, I have delivered God's word. No question, I have given God's word. I've given the gospel of Christ... But as of yet, that preaching is ineffective. Every lost person who hears that message is bound by their depravity. Every person is held captive by their sinful human nature. And so it is impossible for anyone out there to actually respond to the message that I preach and to believe what I have said. Now, 
You remember the message I preached when I explained about the valley of the dead dry bones? And you remember uh, the example of Lazarus? The Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sin. And so when I stand up to preach the gospel, I am preaching to spiritually dead people. And the Bible says that there's nobody in that condition who can understand the things of God. And so the preaching of the gospel by itself can never save anyone. The gospel by itself will always be ineffective. And so the general call is always an ineffective call. And so a person that's going to be saved has to have more than this general call, or sometimes we term that, term that the outward call. So what else does he need? Well, he needs a different call. And this is the call that Paul is speaking about in verse number 18. So this is the effective call. Also, this is the inward call. Sometimes we term it that way. And that's when the Holy Spirit takes the gospel that's preached and he opens the eyes of the sinner so that he can understand it. Now, that call is particular. It's pointed directly at certain people. It's pointed to the chosen ones here in verse number 4, the predestined ones of verse number 5, the redeemed ones of verse number 7, and the sealed ones in verse number 13. Now, let me illustrate for you how this works. Let's suppose that I'm preaching, and right here on the front row are two people who are lost. They've never been to church before. They don't know anything about the gospel. They've never heard this message before. These two people are racially the same. They are socially the same. They are educationally the same. They are environmentally raised the same. Everything is equal with these people. And these two people hear the very same message that I preach. But as I preach, there is one person who begins to feel uneasy about this message. He starts to feel that something's happening to him. What I'm saying to him begins to make sense. And he begins to see there's something in that message for me. There's something here that I need to believe. And so he is uneasy about this and he feels something taking place. Something's happening in his heart. And then at the end of the sermon, he speaks to me and he says, something happened to me. I believe what you said. I have trusted Christ as my Savior. But on the other hand... We have the second person, and he sat there, and he's also listening. He heard the very same message. He heard every word that I spoke, just like the first person. But the message didn't affect him. All that he hears is a story, maybe interesting to him, maybe not. And and as he's listening, he feels no compulsion at all that he wants to believe the message, at least not enough to believe it that it makes some kind of a change in him. And so he leaves this congregation, and he hasn't believed. He doesn't say a word. He goes out, and he doesn't receive Christ. Now, what is it, then, that has made the difference between these two people? I've already said they're alike in every way, and yet one believes and one doesn't believe. Is it their race that made a difference? No, these people are exactly the same racially. Is it their intellect? No, they've been educated exactly the same way. Is it their environment? No, they've been raised in the same kind of households, in the same kind of neighborhoods. The difference is in how the Holy Spirit works in one heart and he doesn't work in another heart. So you see, both of these have heard the general call of the gospel, but only one of them has had the effectual call, the inward call of the Holy Spirit. And that is the only thing that will ever make a difference in people. It's only the Holy Spirit that can make a difference. One is called the life and one is not. Now let's go back to the example of Lazarus. Jesus is standing in the graveyard and begins to speak. And who does he speak to? Well, he speaks to Lazarus specifically. 
Back in those days, the name Lazarus, that was a pretty common name. And so as he's standing in the graveyard and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Did all the graves around start popping open and people start coming out? No. Only this Lazarus came forth. And why is that? Because he heard the specific call of Jesus Christ. It was directed towards him. We go back to Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Paul met her at the, at the river in Philippi. She gathered there to, to pray with a bunch of other ladies. And the Bible says that as Paul preached to her, the Lord opened her heart. And what was that? That was the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. Then we go back to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the Jews, and the Jews are not believing anything that they say. And so Paul says to the Jews, you have rejected the gospel of Christ, and so now we are going to turn and go to the Gentiles. The next thing we see, Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. And the verse there says that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. These Gentile people believed the message that Paul was preaching. So you see, the gospel became effective in them. And why is that? Because the Bible says they were ordained to eternal life. And that's what Paul is speaking about in Ephesians 1, verse 18. Now, folks, the Bible is a, a cohesive book. It doesn't contradict itself. It's not going to make a mistake. It's not disjointed. And so Paul prayed that these Ephesians would understand that it's God who initiates the call. And unless God calls you, you'll never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's very clearly letting them know this is not in them. It's not something they have done. It's not their intellect. It's not their environment. It's not their predispositions. It is because the Holy Spirit has initiated a call to their heart. Now, you know, the popular idea among people today is that salvation is by synergism. What does synergism mean? Well, that means that salvation is a result of cooperation with the human will and the grace of God. These two things cooperate with one another. But do you see any synergism in these verses? It says chosen before the foundation of the world. It says called by God. And here is a call that's always effectual. There's no mistaking how this call is going to end up, what it's going to do. And then we have redemption, and then we have sealing. And so we see here that the call is very specific. It fits exactly with this whole passage so that Paul can say over and over and over again, this is God's doing, and this is for God's glory. Now let's look at another passage that confirms this special effectual call. I want you to keep your fingers in Ephesians chapter 1, and let's turn over to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. And all of you, I think, are familiar with this scripture in Romans verse number, uh, chapter 8, verse number 28. Most of you can probably quote this, but you probably never thought about it in the light that I'm going to speak about it tonight. Because when we read Romans 8, 28, the thing that we always focus on is the first part. And the first part says, all things work together for good. But we need to concentrate on the second part some, and that's who and why do things work together for good. Now look at Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are what? Called according to his purpose. Now, is that everyone? Are we talking about all people in general? No, we're not. The calling is qualified to those who are in God's purpose. And what are we studying in Ephesians? Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. 
Now let's nail this down by reading 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. Now hold on to Romans just a moment and listen to 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. It says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, folks, what we have got to do, somebody has got to start putting all of these scriptures together. And instead of running around all over the Bible as if the Bible has every verse has a different interpretation to itself, we need to understand how the Bible fits perfectly together. Here we see that before the world began, there was a covenant between the Father and the Son. And this covenant said that Christ would come and redeem a very specific people. And we read about that many, many times in in John 17, verse number 2. These people were the chosen ones. And they're chosen according to God's own purpose and grace. And according to 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, these same ones that are chosen have been called out to salvation. Now, that call is a very specific call. It's the specific call of salvation. And all people aren't called this way because if they were, then every single person would be saved. And so we can say that the calling of 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 is the effectual call of Ephesians 1 verse 18. And who is it that receives the call? It's the chosen ones of Ephesians 1 4. Now, let's go back to Romans again, because Paul goes on in verse number 29, talking about this call. In verse number 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, listen to verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called... Then he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. So we see how specific that this is. They're called, they're justified, and they're glorified. Well, has that happened to every person? No, no it hasn't. Or again, everybody would be saved. So it's evident then, there has to be two calls. There's a general call of the gospel that goes out to everybody, and it's never effective. And there is an inward call of the gospel that's always effective because this is the call that's used in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, folks, the hyper-fundamentalists will deny everything that I've just told you. And you know why? It's because they know that this kind of teaching is death to their possibility salvation. Now, I say that salvation is very specific. And I say that the Word of God reveals the specificity of this in no uncertain terms. And so I say salvation is not possible. Salvation is absolutely certain. And I say that salvation is not by chance. Salvation is determined. So there is no chance that's involved. And that's what you call God-centered theology and not man-centered theology. Now, folks, when I was saved, it was because God intended to save me. And he always intended to save me. And he sent Jesus Christ into the world for that purpose. Because that was his intention. Now they say there is no intention. There, there is no certainty. This is all a crapshoot. And, and Christ is as surprised as you are when you get saved. Well, that kind of boggles my mind. I don't know about you, but it's, it's strange to me. How can people be so confused? Now, what I'm telling you tonight is what thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Baptist people have believed all down through the centuries. And I can tell you, folks, some of those Baptist people are turning over in their graves, wondering how Baptist people today got this thing so messed up. How have they so convoluted the scriptures that they can't clearly see what the Bible says? So what have they done? 
Well, let's go back to the beginning of the message. And what they have done is to incorporate two, at least two of these errors, the early church heresies that I spoke about. Let me show you how. What do they incorporate? Well, the first one is this, Christ plus philosophy. In other words, they say, God does not make a distinction in people. God must have our cooperation because man is the center of all things and we could never conceive of a God who would create this world for any other purpose than to save man. And so they determined in their philosophical musings that there is no covenant between the Father and the Son. And so they come up with the philosophies of hyper-dispensational thinking. And they believe that God has a different salvation for all these different dispensations. And folks, that would be a natural progression. I mean, if you believe that God does not predetermine anything, then God finds out when you find out. And God just has to work with what he has at the moment. And so when you philosophized and you have rejected the eternal covenant of God, you naturally will not believe that God has chosen anyone for salvation. And that is exactly what they've done. They philosophize themselves completely out of the picture of the Word of God. Then the second of four errors that they have is Christ plus legalism. That's the next error that they have. The effectual call of the Holy Spirit, they say it's not necessary. Because even though the Bible preaches or teaches the depravity of man, it doesn't teach his total inability. And so they say that dead is not dead. Dead's not dead. And my faith, that is my response, unaided by the Holy Spirit. Now, that is exactly the same thing as this seed of faith theory. And there are many hyper-fundamentalists who believe this seed of faith thing, that all people are born with the seed of faith, and all that we really need to do is to cultivate that seed, and we can be saved. What does that do? It makes faith a work of man. Faith is already in man, And so faith is what we contribute to our salvation. And so now you have legalism. We're saved by our works. Now, I know that they don't say that, but they haven't yet figured out where this dead-end theology of theirs leads. You see, if faith is not God-given, then it must be man-supplied. And if faith is God-given, then faith must be discretionary because the Bible says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you and that ye, we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. And listen to this, for all men have not faith. Faith is discretionary. Faith is a peculiar gift of God. And so why does the hyper-fundamentalist say all men have a seed of faith when the Bible says that all men have not faith? I think I believe the Bible on this. Well, I need to close the message tonight. Now, we've had the opportunity to examine just one part of Paul's petition. And... uh, Paul prays for understanding of the plan. Now, next week in part number three of the message, I'm going to come back to this, and I'm going to talk about another part of understanding the plan. First is God's, first is, uh, uh, God's plan, and the next is going to be God's consolation, God's call, and then God's consolation. But let me give you the last thought on your listening sheet tonight. Here's a question for you. Do you have assurance of your salvation? Now, Paul prays that they might know the hope of their calling. And I've explained many times before that in the Bible, the word hope does not mean uncertainty. We use the word hope with uncertainty or in an uncertain sense. But the Bible speaks of hope actually as being rock-solid assurance. And I want to tell you how you can have rock-solid assurance. And the best way 
is for you to grab hold of these doctrines that we've been preaching in Ephesians. You see, when you come to understand what God has done for you, and you believe that God has a plan, and then you are convinced by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you are a part of that plan, then how could you have anything other than rock-solid assurance? You see, God's plan stretches all the way from eternity past right into eternity future. And all parts of God's plan must come to pass because God has the power to make it all come to pass. Now, here's what Ephesians 1.10 says, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one thing, in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And so, if you are a part of that plan, then you have unfailing assurance because you have the promise of God. You will receive your final redemption. It must happen. The question is, have you trusted Christ? And if you haven't, there's no better time to trust Christ than right now. Most of you, I think, or everybody in here claims to be saved. And thank the Lord that we are part of God's predetermined plan. And because of that, we have everlasting assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we learn here, um, how it just overwhelms us, what you've done for us. And to think, Lord, that how insignificant we are and how we're nothing. And yet you send Jesus Christ into the world to die for us. And Lord, you provided a way that we could go to heaven when we die. We just thank you so much for that, Lord. I just ask you to open our eyes of understanding. Help us to be enlightened to these great gospel truths and to know what you've done for us. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.